0: Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel, and it's Infrastructure Week on the podcast. Jason Hall joins me to take a look at President Biden's infrastructure proposal and what it might mean for investors. Jason, welcome back on the show.
1: It's great to be on, and it's it's Infrastructure Week right here, but it's been Infrastructure Week in Congress for about 30 years, I think
0: yeah it's 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 a meme at this point of, of it's always infrastructure week uh, lots of proposals um, it's been a topic of conversation Jason to your point for for, for a long time we've talked about a number of pod uh, a number of companies on this show infrastructure type companies they've heard us say Brookfield infrastructure partners a, a bunch of times we may talk about that company later but before we get into the president's proposal the numbers involved there why is infrastructure something that we've been talking about for so long even before this proposal came down the pike
1: because it's deteriorating in the developed world especially in the u.s you look at the american society of civil engineers and they release uh, every year or two they release this this scorecard right the report card for america's infrastructure and it was a c-minus um last time around and that was actually better but it's just so just a couple of crazy statistics right so they say uh, a water main breaks somewhere in the united states Every two minutes, uh, six billions of treated water is lost every day. Um, It's enough to fill 9,000 swimming pools. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but American Water um, uh, put it in one of their their presentations that something like 20% of the treated water in the United States is lost, right? So we all hear about the bridges and roads. Here's a big one that jumped out at me. I wanna throw this out there. This kind of caught me off guard when I read it in the Biden plan. Something like 30 million Americans don't have access to high-quality, high-speed internet in 2021. As much as the bridges and the roads and the water are critical in modern society, if you don't have access to high-speed internet, you're left out.
0: Right. I think we we talk about you know the importance of infrastructure, and infrastructure is kind of the the lifeblood of, of kind of what what makes things run behind the scenes. And I think we're, we're at at the point with the internet uh, to this point. To your point. Uh, I said point like a bunch of times but we're we're at uh, at this point where the, the internet infrastructure is essential. It's not a nice to have anymore. We've seen this past year where you know lots of folks you couldn't go to work without uh, without internet access. And in the past, you would have said you couldn't have gone to work without a car. And we talk about how important uh, you know highway infrastructure is. And I think the importance of the internet is, is starting to reach that level. If you if you don't have access uh, to, to plug into that network, you're really at a structural disadvantage. Just like if you don't have a car, you're at a structural disadvantage in finding a job. Those sorts of things. And and you know we're at this this, this new wave um, of infrastructure here here coming down the pike.
1: Yeah, and I think it's 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 even to, to hyper-focus on this one issue with internet access and speed and data and reliability, if remote work is going to become a bigger thing, it becomes even more important. Because what we're doing right now takes a lot more bandwidth and a lot more reliable internet than just sending and receiving emails, right? So it's becoming even more important.
0: Absolutely so so lots of things kind of wrapped up in this plan maybe we can run through a few of the, a few of the, the line items and maybe talk about the things that popped out to us so, so I can just run through some some high- level numbers for us. I said at the top is a 2.3 trillion dollar plan breaking that down into, into subcategories we've got 400 million dollars for home and community care as our population ages helping to take care of some of the elderly 213 uh, 213 billion dollars for affordable housing so this is kind of uh, refurbishing existing housing and putting new housing in place 174 billion dollars for electric vehicles and electric vehicle infrastructure that all, that includes half a million half a million electric vehicle charging stations by 2030 115 billion for roads and bridges bridges this is you know the bernie sanders gets him excited right because the roads and bridges are crumbling um 100 billion for high speed broadband 100 billion for school uh, for school construction 100 billion for the power grid and clean energy Eighty-five billion for public transit, and then eighty billion for railways. Obviously, that's a huge, long wish list. This has to get through Congress, so the likelihood that every single one of those items gets funded, at, you know, at one hundred percent levels, uh, isn't quite isn't likely. But when you look at this wish list, what pops out to you, uh, Jason? What are your thoughts?
1: So uh, the, the the obvious big one is home community care because it's such a massive. Massive number. But the other thing is that you think about it more broadly, there's a lot of technology that's tied into this now. You think about EVs and this as we've really, we've seen only one company be truly successful in manufacturing EVs at any scale, $174 billion, right, to build the infrastructure to make it more feasible. Uh, and then the broadband one; those just they really, really stand. Those just really stand out to me as being important because a lot of the other stuff, it's kind of the typical things that we see: it's the asphalt, it's the concrete, it's the steel, it's, it's the it's the nuts and bolts stuff. Um, but seeing that focus on the te- where technology is going to drive the future economy, I think is really important.
0: Yeah, there was an interesting quote from Biden, he said, 200 years ago, trains weren't traditional infrastructure until America made the choice to lay down tracks across the country. Highways weren't traditional infrastructure until we allowed ourselves to imagine that roads could connect our, our nation across state lines. And so now it's kind of this idea that, you know, one of the other line items that I think is important to call out is, is $50 billion for for semiconductor uh, research and infrastructure put in place. We've talked about th- th- this past year about how systemically important semiconductors are, and. We, we're seeing, to your point, Jason, lots of this money going towards what we think of it as traditional infrastructure with roads and bridges and highways and, and and energy, and then we have some of this new infrastructure uh, that's starting to get acknowledged as, as really important, whether that's semiconductors or high-speed broadband um, or, or what have you.
1: No, I was going to say absolutely. I mean, but I think you you have to extend it and think about the data center companies too, the the non-traditional companies that tie the telecommunications network together, like American Tower. I mean, it's just it's it's much more. We think a little more broadly about what infrastructure really means, and it's 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 more than it was even 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think one of the interesting things too is you look at the history of infrastructure, the the government involvement has always been. Uh, Extremely high, right? You've got to think about the grants that railroads got to to put railroads in place and and those sorts of things. I think, and and you look at the timing of that as well. uh, You know, the the highways were in the 1950s. That's like 30 years after the Model T. When you look at the railroad construction, you know, the big uh, transcontinental railroads, like the 1860s, that's about a few decades after railroads really started catching on. So we're kind of on the same historical timeline to when we would see that take place as what we've seen um, in history. So uh, I think certainly, certainly, these areas are going to become more important, and and, and we'll see whether it's in this this um, uh, this bill or another one, more more government involvement. The other interesting thing I think from this this plan that folks are going to talk about is the, is the tax aspect um, of the plan, trying to pay for um, pay for the, these requirements. And so part of that um, is uh, is a proposal to increase the corporate tax rate to 28% f- from the current rate at, at 21%. This is interesting because this is still much lower uh, than the corporate tax rate in 2017, which was 35%. So this is proposing to bump up the corporate tax rate, but we're still you know, only halfway back to where we would where we were in, in 2017.
1: Yeah, and I think this is the part where the 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 partisan debate is going to be the most heated in terms of, of of how this how this comes out. And obviously, we're not this is that's that's outside of our wheelhouse. But at the end of the day, we're talking about something that there is massive bipartisan support for. And I'm not talking about just within the halls of Congress. I'm talking about throughout society. This is an important thing. You think about Flint, Michigan, right? It's a it's a city that's water supply was largely undrinkable. You think about the impact of drought in a lot of places impacting water supply. You think about our grids already, uh, whether it's from the impact of wildfires or our ability to deploy renewables where the wind blows and the sun shines is largely separated from the most populous areas. So we have to get the infrastructure to make to make that even a functional reality for more of our power, so um, there's certainly bipartisan interest. The, the how we pay for it thing, who buddy, uh, that's a, that's a big question.
0: Certainly, and, and you know we're, we'll get into now maybe talking about some winners and losers. Certainly, there's going to be some folks that this corporate tax increase negatively impacts them. And they don't they don't see a direct benefit um, from the infrastructure side. I think of like banks and financials maybe as companies that might be hit by this this. Um, uh, uh, by this increase in the corporate tax rate. But when you when you look at companies that you know are going to get a boost from from this potential legislation in whatever form it, it may come, uh, what companies come to mind for you Jason?
1: So there's a few that are kind of obvious and I think to a certain extent uh, the 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 thing that investors should do is not get too cute with with trying to find companies that are set to hyper benefit from this because there's an inverse side of that that, that, that where the risk lies. But for me, the the two that really jump out the most um, are Brookfield Infrastructure um, and Steel Dynamics. I'll start with Steel Dynamics because this is a company that's based in the U.S. and all of its operations are in North America. For the most, I don't think there's I don't think they have anything outside of North America. But the short version: Steel Dynamics is a steelmaker. They're the youngest steelmaker to be launched, um, large-scale steelmaker to be launched in the U.S. They were founded by some folks from Nucor. Anybody that knows anything about the steel industry uh, knows that Nucor really was a major disruptor and is the largest steel producer in North America that innovated using electric arc furnaces, uh, mini mills as they call them, um, versus these large blast furnace uh, steel facilities. And Steel Dynamics was built from the ground up with this same model. And here's Here's why this is important. The, the The bottom line is that the steel industry, like a lot of these businesses that rely that are tied to infrastructure, are very cyclical in demand. Right, we're where we are because the demand cycles have been slow to respond. And what we see is periods where spending goes up, and a lot of time it's funded by government programs. And there's lots of be- lots of money that gets spent, so there's lots of money to be made. In the steel industry, you think about its exposure to energy industry, its exposure to the automotive industry, the exposure to consumer spending. Those are cyclical things, right? And a lot of them are overlapped one another. So that means it's hyper exposed to that. So if you're in an industry where you're supplying cyclical businesses, you need to have some sort of variable cost structure. Companies like US Steel, companies like AK Steel historically have not had that variable cost structure. Steel Dynamics has it because of their use of their electric arc furnaces that they can scale up and down, right? So maybe they can't be the most profitable when demand is the highest, but demand spends the the, the the least amount of time is when demand is at the highest. So they need their ability to scale more than they need their ability to be peak profitable. So that's why I like Steel Dynamics, because they're a big winner if we see increased spending here, but they're also strong when, when the market isn't strong.
0: Right. That's... That's similar to to the company that that comes to mind for me, Jason. I, just to list out a few that we've talked about on the podcast in the past, that folks can go back and check out those episodes. Um, we just last week you we talked about Caterpillar and John Deere. Um, that, that those companies clearly would be beneficiaries from infrastructure spending. Jason and I, um, a, along with Matt Delalo and others, have talked in the past a lot about about uh, you know companies like Nextera Energy or Atlantic Sustainable Infrastructure or Clearway Energy. Some of these yield co businesses that would benefit from increased investment here. And then in, in renewables, you. TPI composites, SolarEdge are also kind of renewable companies that benefit. So those are companies all kind of we we've done episodes on in the past that you can go back and and listen to us discuss in depth. Also, also wanted to talk about another company that I don't think I've ever discussed on the show that I think is a, a clear beneficiary for me, and that's Vulcan Materials ticker VMC. So a company It's kind of close to me because it's, it's from the Birmingham, Alabama area. That's where it gets the, the Vulcan name. And so, uh, it's
1: close to home uh, for myself. You know, a lot of people don't know about the Vulcan statue yeah, because in Birmingham. Yeah, because the Steel City right? in
0: Birmingham. That's a link to the Steel Dynamics as well. So, it's yeah, it's a link because uh, Vulcan was the god of fire and, you know, the hearth and all those sorts of things. So, anyway, uh, what does Vulcan Materials do? They're based in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, they're one of the largest uh, producers uh, or providers of aggregate in the United States. They're based around the southern half um, of the US. Um, 19 of the 25 fastest growing markets are served by Vulcan's operations. 50% of the population in the US lives within 50 miles of a Vulcan operation. Then 90% of their revenues are in markets in which they have the number one or number two position. When you think about aggregate, Uh, This is like this is gravel, things like that, stuff that goes into the cement that you use to build roads and bridges, or to put a foundation in, to put a uh, to put a um, windmill or or something like that. It also goes into like the foundation of your home. We talk about building more affordable housing and how there's a big shortage um, of housing in the U.S. So, so Vulcan. the, their moat is essentially it's a, it's a it's a geographic moat in the sense that it's really expensive to ship uh, these aggregate products uh, long distances um, and you don't need once you've got a a, a a a you know gravel pit that's serving your needs it really doesn't make sense for someone to open it up across the street from you because you already have kind of the the customer relationships and all those sorts of things so once you've set up it's really difficult for someone to disrupt you and Vulcan's been growing for you know uh, over sixty plus years so they, they have a strong track record of that um the way they would benefit is similar to what what Jason said with through dynamics, increased demand uh, for their products as we invest more in building roads and bridges, as well as building more housing um, in the U.S. That should boost throughput um, of their of their products. Um, you know, if you look at Vulcan Materials, it hasn't beaten the S&P over the past three and five years, but it does beat the S&P over the past 10 years. Part of that is there's just been underinvestment in housing since 2008. There's pent up demand there. In theory, as we catch up on our on our housing construction and as we uh, push some of this investment into infrastructure, that should that should benefit Vulcan Materials from a revenue point of view. Look over the past five years, have grown revenue at a 7% annual CAGR, grown their net income at a 20 plus percent. Annual Kager, and then their levered free cash flow at an 18.5% uh, uh, five-year Kager. So, and that that's all S&P uh, Capital IQ numbers. So, when you look at this business, this is a this is a business that, that has succeeded over the long term, and and its in its market has has a moat uh, that that's strongly in place. Can benefit clearly from um, from from these trends that would get pushed forward by by this legislation. But even if nothing happens with the government. Or anything like that. This is a business that can keep, you know, uh, operating and, and generating returns uh, uh, for, for investors. So that's why uh, that's a company that that is is interesting to me. E- even without government involvement, they have a strong moat that, that is going to persist.
1: I'm going to throw two other little um, financial statistics about the company out there that I think are really really interesting. You think about that sort of business and you think, wow, they've got to, their margins must not be very good. It's got to be about turning over volume and really getting that operating leverage as much as you can. This is stunning. Do you know that their uh, that their gross margins have not been below twenty four percent in the past five years? It's a
0: great company. Yeah,
1: and here's that where the leverage does kick in, taking that gross margin because let's be honest, like you said, it's this is not a cheap material to move and to process. So those those costs get kind of high on the operating uh, side. Their operating margins have been six percent or sixteen percent or higher over that same period that's really impressive. I would never have guessed that this is a company with even double digit operating margins. So, yeah, that supports everything you just said.
0: Yeah. And the nature of the business is such that it's not like your margin is my opportunity because the the barrier to entry for the business is is so high that it's it's just, I can't see how you're going to disrupt them in a meaningful way. Um, so, anyway, I, th- I think that's, that's a, an, an attractive winner. It's not going to be a huge... You know ten bagger for you in in five years or anything like that but but i think i think vulcan is is a clear beneficiary you could you could lump Berkshire hathaway in this in this uh bucket as well right Berkshire has a lot of building materials under its under its portfolio you know is involved in the uh in the the energy infrastructure um you know through through Berkshire hathaway energy obviously has b n s f railroad um so and and they own um they own um Pilot Flying J Truck Stop, which could be a beneficiary of the move to electric vehicles. That's another company, kind of in this building materials space. Not the sexiest company in the world, but it is a clear beneficiary if this government dollars go into those the sectors they say they will.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a company that's a beneficiary, even if they don't. Right, and that's something we've highlighted a couple times. Again, you think about one thing you mentioned in our pre-planning was like the economic stimulus, right? So some of the biggest beneficiaries, maybe companies we're not thinking about that can profit from the economic growth. Right? And that's one of the things that, that the administration is touting that's going to help pay for this over time is it's going to help stimulate the economy. It's going to make America more competitive, more opportunities for new businesses. But I think I really love that Brook, the Berkshire one. Dude, I'm going I'm to hit on it again because I don't think people understand it's energy business. And this was the biggest take I took from from Buffett's um, shareholder letter, his annual letter he wrote uh, not too long ago, was when he described... Um, with used to be Mid American Energy, and as they've acquired Envy Energy and other things and built it, now they call it Berkshire Hathaway Energy. The company's in the middle of this like quarter-century-long project where it's investing basically all of its all of its uh, operating cash is being reinvested. They're not paying any dividends. A utility business is not paying any dividends, right? That's 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 just think about that. They're not paying any dividends back to Berkshire. Uh, the parent company, they're investing all of that to build out transmission from the middle of the country where the wind and solar is going to be produced to the coasts where the population center are centers are where it's consumed. They've they've already made this massive bet that the demand is going to be there without counting on the government investing resources to build it out. So I think that's a big that's a big thing. And then think about you mentioned BNSF. I want to say it again. We got to move a lot of this stuff around. You think about when the infrastructure is being deployed BNSF's a big winner for helping facilitate all of the logistics of investing in our infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so so, so yeah, Jason, I think I think we've done a good job kind of laying out a few companies that, that can be beneficiaries of, of this government emphasis on on infrastructure and whatever this plan looks like. I, I think these companies should get some benefit, and even if there is no uh, government even if this bill totally falls apart. I think all the businesses that we listed can continue to operate profitably and deliver returns for shareholders. Which kind of ties into where I wanted to conclude this. When you think about investing when there's some type of government catalyst or there's a law or regulatory change, how do you factor that into your thesis? How heavily do you weight it in your thought process?
1: Well I think it gets back to those um the, the the Greek maxims, right? One thing is um uh the the one so I'm, so so what's help me out here nick i'm I'm drawing a blank here um uh I'm going to have to look them up now I'm i'm freezing. I'm freezing up here, but the idea is that you can't go all or nothing in the idea that this is going to be a sea change and a massive winner. You have to invest in companies like the ones that we mentioned that are are able to thrive without requiring government stimulus an example that i used when we were prepping before the show was solar panel makers right so you think about an industry that has seen huge demand growth for for over a decade now and is expected to continue to deliver massive growth for years there was a period um a decade you know you look from 2010 through the end of 2019 sunpower Canadian solar, first solar, from the beginning of that uh, of that decade to the end, they, fell, they lost. Their stocks were down 67%, 23%, and 59%. And then you look at the chart, and it's like a tidal wave of up and down and up and down and up and down, because you have highly cyclical industries already, right? So when you buy those companies is hyper important in those cycles, and the price you pay is hyper important. And a big part of the thesis over that period was China's going to subsidize, the U.S. is going to subsidize, Europe's going to subsidize. And it didn't deliver unless you timed it well and you bought at the right period and frankly exited at the right period, which we all know are the two hardest things to do well. If you're trying to time the market, you, you may not have made money. So thinking about the companies that are strong across the cycles and even can thrive in the downsides of the cycles and not. Be rel- reliant on government subsidies—that's the key.
0: Yeah, I think for me, kind of two points jump out. I think I've said this on the podcast before, and it's—it I, I had to learn it the hard way. Is—is uh, is any thesis that's dependent on the government doing anything is a bad thesis, right? You, there needs to be <laughs> a thesis that can exist, notwithstanding the government doing anything, right? Because if the government can flip a switch and make your thesis work, they can flip the switch and make your thesis not work, and you know. Sometimes they're going to flip the switch the wrong way, and, and, and so that that's you want to find a thesis that can exist independent of, of of action from the government or kind of government putting their blessing on on something.
1: Second Nick, off, the Greek the Greek Nick the Greek maxim I was trying to find, which ties in, is "Surety brings ruin." It's the third of the Delphic maxims, right? You, you if you count entirely on one thing, it's probably going to fail.
0: Absolutely, um, yeah, and I guess that's like um anything that what can go wrong will go wrong, all those sorts of things. Kind of right. that's a eventually, to yeah, that. right, right. Um, the second thing I wanted to point is even if you're correct on the government action thesis, you need to understand that this thing takes time to percolate. So, so one thing that, that taught me this one is a good example is so a few years ago, there's a Supreme Court case that legalized sports betting. I know everybody knows sports betting is legalized now because you see ads every time you turn on your TV trying to get you to open up an account um, with these apps. But I think a lot of people expected um, expected you know sports betting is legalized and now all of a sudden it's going to run all over the country. A lot of those stocks like popped for a day or two, and then came down in a really significant way um, over the summer after that decision took place. Because we still needed states across the country to to pass their own bills and then set put in place, um, you know, their their systems and laws and processes uh, so that these companies can set up and, and comply and operate legally. And we're going to see some of that same delay take place in, in this Biden infrastructure bill. Like even if the bill passes, it's going to take some time to actually implement. This stuff. So there's not two trillion dollars worth of projects ready to stick a shovel in the ground and start producing things, right? When you talk about building infrastructure and roads and bridges, there's going to have to go through a significant permitting process for all these local local um, jurisdictions in order to actually get these projects done. So another thing to think about is just this isn't flip a switch and then overnight all this money is flowing into the economy. It's going to be a little bit uh, longer for for this to play out. And so I, I think. A lot of a lot of investors intellectually want to say, well, the thing passed, so so therefore, boom, you know, the world changes. That that's we need to understand what actually has to happen in the real world to go from, you know, a proposal that allocates these dollars to those dollars actually being spent in the real economy. And so that's a thing to keep in mind as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I think we've become so spoiled when we have um, companies like CrowdStrike and Zoom that can report fifty to three hundred percent revenue growth. Um, seemingly overnight. Um, and it's just in, in the real world when you're talking about steel and concrete and, and f- laying fiber optics and those sorts of things, there's so much complexity and there's so many people involved. And it just, it does, it does take time. It really does take time.
0: Yeah. so I think for me, Jason, maybe final thoughts on, on this, this infrastructure bill. I think the takeaways for me is this is a huge opportunity. There's going to be lots of dollars spent to get our infrastructure up to speed, and some companies are going to capture that and deliver meaningful returns for shareholders. We don't know the form this bill is going to take. We don't know how long it'll take for, for, for these dollars to be spent. But we know this is a problem that needs to be solved, and there's going to be companies that are out there trying to solve it one way or the other.
1: Yeah. My, my follow-up to that is that I think it's going to be, um, a, a, it's a great win for society. And, as an investor, if you're really looking to profit from from infrastructure, frankly, you're probably better off looking at companies that are, are built to succeed in infrastructure internationally, which is one of the things that brings me back around to Brookfield um, Infrastructure, and then companies like American Tower, um, because infrastructure growth is going to be happening around the world, whether Congress does anything or not. And those companies are built to succeed in multiple markets they know how to operate, they know how to allocate capital. Um, and and and, the, and the, again, the, the companies that have been the winners are probably going to continue to be the winners.
0: Absolutely. Jason, it's so great to have you back on the podcast, man. I, I missed having you on the show. I, we need to do this again sooner.
1: Me too, I, I agree. You know where to find me.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll be in touch. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on.